What then shall we conclude on the basis of all these things? If God supports us, who can successfully oppose us? He who did not spare his one and only Son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give us everything else he has promised? Who can convict God's chosen people? God is the one who chose them. Who can condemn such people? Christ Jesus has been condemned. More than that, he's been raised and sits at the right hand of God and speaks on our behalf right now. What can separate us from Christ's love? Can tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, danger, or death? Remember the scripture. Because of you, we are being put to death all day long. Because of you, we are considered sheep ready for slaughter. In all these circumstances, friends, through our bond with him who loves us, we are more than just victorious. That said, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor rulers, neither things present nor things to come, neither powers, neither heights nor depths, neither any other created thing will be able to separate us from God's love which is made available in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for this magnificent text of Scripture, Holy Scripture. This beautiful passage that we can explore together as a family as a community of believers. Lord, I pray that you would walk up and down the aisle between the pews, that you would touch us, that you would breathe on us, speak to us through this word. Jesus, we need you. We love you. And we pray that through this time together, you'd make us more and more like you. We love you and Pray that you'd bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome, if you're new, to First Baptist Freeport. Uh, my name is Jonah Bissell, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we are just so glad that you are with us this morning. Uh, it's so exciting to see new faces, and yesterday was such a great time to just get together and have fun as a neighborhood in the block party. So thank you all for coming out and for those who help put that together. Uh, if you haven't been with us this year, Mike and I have engaged in a series that we've called the Great Commission series. And so we started in January by going through the Acts of the Apostles. It's the first book after the Gospels in the New Testament. And we walked through the chapters in Acts, and now we are walking through the letters of Paul, the Apostle Paul. And so we're walking through them chronologically, so not necessarily in the order in which you find them in your New Testament. And last week, uh, Mike opened up our discussion of Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, most of our messages will concern, you know, one letter and, and one message, but Romans is famously dense and so we're going to devote three messages to Romans. And so I'll be doing part two and then part three next week. And so we'll be looking at Paul's epistle to the Romans. Over the past few 
messages of mine, um, I have spent an inordinate amount of time in background and context rather than the text itself. So I don't want to do that again this morning, so I want to just dive right in. Uh, So if you haven't already, would you turn with me to Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8, and we're going to be looking at the last nine verses of the chapter, so verses 31 through 39. I do have to say a few things about context. Um, We always need to read Scripture in context, especially in a series like this, where we haven't been in Romans for a long time. Uh, First, the situational context. Now, Paul is writing to a, a community of believers in Rome, many of whom he'd never met. He did not establish the church in Rome. He didn't plant it like he did in Corinth or in Galatia. In Thessalonica, letters we've looked at thus far. And so he's writing to believers in order to uh, enlist their support for his grand mission to Spain. That's the idea. He knows, though, that these believers, like all other believers in the Mediterranean world, were experiencing persecution, tribulation, trial, affliction, sometimes at the hands of the state state-sanctioned persecution. They were suffering. Paul knew this. Amidst this suffering, the believers at Rome were likely beginning to doubt God's care for them. As they are beaten, imprisoned, executed, they're likely wondering if God had removed His hand of blessing from them. Paul is writing into that situation. Now for the literary context. As you can see, this is Romans 8. We've got seven chapters before this, and then we've got eight chapters after it. So this is really smack dab in the middle. Uh, Mike preached last week largely on Romans 1 through 4, which comprise a very discrete unit in Romans. There Paul articulates his gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, which features the themes of Justice, judgment, sin, righteousness, faith, things like that. Romans 1 through 4 really focuses on our future salvation, on our sinfulness and what it takes to have our sins forgiven, to be declared righteous before a just God. That's really what Romans 4 is concerned with. And then in Romans 5, Paul kind of shifts to speak about the present nature of our relationship with God. So if Romans 1 through 4 is about our future salvation, Romans 5 through 8 is about our present relation. And I think this is interesting because in Romans 8, 31 through 39, the passage divides quite cleanly into two sections. That's the first four verses, 31 through 34, which feature the themes of condemnation, Judgment, justification, the legal themes that you see in Romans 1 through 4. And then at verse 35, it shifts its focus to our present relationship with God. Relational, emotional, intimate language, which corresponds to Romans 5 through 8. So this passage really closes out the first half of Paul's letter to the Romans. So he's looking back at chapters 1 through 8, at everything he said thus far, 
the letter which had been read aloud to this community at Rome, and he's concluding this section, putting a bow on it. So let's just dive in then at verse 31. Paul begins in verse 31 with a question. He says, what then shall we say to these things? Now, this is not the first time we see this sort of question in Romans. Uh, He utters a similar question in Romans 3, but uh, more significantly in Romans 4. So he's talked about salvation in Christ, about the sinfulness of Jews and Greeks, and how Jesus has come as our sacrifice to make us righteous. And then in chapter 4, he talks about Abraham. And Paul says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? our forefather according to the flesh. So he's looking back at everything he said before chapter 4, and he says, what then shall we say? Now, to these things, that's the language here in verse 31. It's not as though these things are an entity that we're having a conversation with, say to these things. The word to in Greek refers to uh, content about, concerning, in view of, in response to these things. That's what the, the, the language conveys here. And what are these things? Think about it. What does Paul mean by these things in verse 31? Some scholars think he's referring to the immediately preceding verses, so maybe verses 26 through 30. Some reach back a bit further, chapters 5 through 8. But I think based on the division of our text, Paul is reaching all the way back to the beginning of Romans and is saying, based on everything I've said to you thus far, what conclusions should we draw? Based on everything I've said to you about sin, about righteousness, judgment, justice, and given your present circumstances, what conclusions should we draw? Well, then Paul answers his question, of course, with a question. This is Paul we're talking about. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, I want you to imagine, friends, a courtroom setting. When I preached on Galatians, we talked about justification, and I distanced myself from the courtroom interpretation. But here it is very clear in Romans that Paul is talking about justification in those terms. I want you to imagine this heavenly courtroom on the last day where all humanity is before God being judged, okay? Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is on our side, our legal support, our advocate, our lawyer almost, Who can successfully oppose us? Paul's not saying we won't have enemies. Who can be against us? People are against us. They were against the Romans. It's probably why they were doubting God's care for them. Of course we have opponents, we have enemies. But the language here suggests who can successfully convict us in that last day court of law? Who can successfully oppose us if God is on our side? Well, he further answers this in verse 32, which is one of the most stunning verses of our passage. So I want you to 
pay careful attention to verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Now first, this is the argument from greater to lesser. So the idea is if, if Paul can prove that God did do this very unlikely thing in giving up his only son for us, then God's giving everything else to us will seem all the more reasonable, right? This language of sparing and giving one's only son makes me think of another story in the Bible, a story from the book of Genesis. Now, let me set up the context a bit so you all who aren't as familiar can uh, imagine this. In Genesis, God calls a man by the name of Abraham to be in relationship with him. Now, Abraham had no children, and he was getting older and older and older, and God promised that Abraham would be the father of many nations, but he had no kids. Abraham is longing for a child of his own. His wife, Sarah, is about 90 years old. Abraham is 99, I believe. And God finally gives them a son, Isaac. In Genesis 22, one of the most famous texts in Jewish tradition, God commands Abraham to bring his son Isaac He's called his only beloved son, Isaac, to a mountain and to sacrifice him there to the Lord. This passage drips with pathos. I would encourage you to read it later, Genesis 22. And it says that Abraham and the boy, who was of an age to understand perhaps what was going on, they're walking up the mountain. It says Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son, his only son. But the angel of the Lord called to him and said, Stop! Stop, Abraham! God the Father led his only son, Jesus, to the cross. He did not pull his hand away. Abraham got to pull his hand away. God did not spare his only son who had existed in the bosom of the Father for all eternity. Friends, Abraham had another son, Ishmael. God had one son. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, handed him over to these Roman soldiers who nailed him to a cross, handed him over to death itself. How will that God not also give us everything else he has promised? Roman believers, take heart. God has not forgotten you. Paul moves on in this question format in verse 33 to ask, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He's asked, who can be against us? This is a similar question. In this court of law, who can successfully convict us? Who can prove our guilt? 
Who can accuse us and have it stick? There's one figure in the Bible who may be able to accuse us. His name or his title actually means the accuser. And that figure is called Satan in Scripture. I don't even think it's a name. It's the Satan, the accuser in the court of law. Satan will try to accuse us. Paul is saying, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This phrase elect is all over the Old Testament. It means God's chosen people. The people of Israel were chosen from among the other nations to be God's prized possession, His treasure. Mike has preached about this. Who shall successfully convict the people God has chosen? He's standing beside them as their defense attorney. He functions as the judge, and he has chosen these people. He's pronounced them righteous. Paul says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He goes on to ask, who is to condemn? Who is to prove believers guilty on the last day? And then he says, it is Christ Jesus who has done four things. Four things that I'd like to unpack in some detail. So first, Christ Jesus is the one who died. He died. The penalty or punishment, the the sentence of condemnation was death. And it says that Jesus absorbed that penalty. Jesus experienced it. Jesus was condemned for us. He died. Second, Jesus was raised. This means that he, he defeated death. He defeated this cosmic punishment that awaits all sinful humans. Not only this, but he was shown to be who he said he was. No messianic imposter, but the real deal, the Son of God, the sinless Messiah. He was raised. Third, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now this recalls actually the most commonly cited Old Testament text in the New. And that's Psalm 110.1. She says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And so to sit at the right hand of the king was to be given authority, dominion, power, privilege. Jesus not only died and defeated death, but he has been promoted to a position of divine authority. And how does he use that authority? He intercedes for us. He doesn't flaunt his authority, draw people to to praise him and magnify him. He humbles himself, and every day he speaks on our behalf. It says in Romans 8.26 that when we're weak and we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, prays for us. In ancient Israel, once a year, the high priest would go into the inner sanctum of the temple, the Holy of Holies, would bring a spotless lamb, slaughter the animal, and would intercede on behalf of the people, forgiving them of their sins. In Hebrews, it says that Jesus did not enter a place made with hands, but into heaven itself. 
to appear in the presence of God. He intercedes for us every single day. Friends, how could we doubt for a second that God loves us? How could we think that he's forgotten us if these things are true? Well, that is the section about future salvation corresponding to Romans 1 through 4. Here, Paul shifts to talk about our present relationship with God. Language of intimacy, relationality, and love. In verse 35, he asks, Who shall separate us, or what shall separate us from the love of Christ? To separate us would be to pull two people apart relationally, get in their way to break the relationship. Love of Christ refers to Christ's love for us here. Subjective, Christ's love for us. What shall thwart Christ's love for us? What shall cut it, sever it, sabotage it? And then Paul lists a number of potential threats that could make you think that Christ has stopped loving you. He says, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, danger, sword? Are these just abstract, theoretical realities for Paul? Things he's heard about but doesn't know much about. In 1 Corinthians a letter he's written already before Romans. Paul talks about the apostles as like men sentenced to death. A spectacle to the world, he says. Fools for Christ's sake. He says, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless. We labor. We are reviled, persecuted, slandered like the scum of the world, he says. And in his next letter to the Corinthians, it gets even better. Paul talks about his own personal track record, his own resume in ministry. I've had far greater labors than any of these imposter apostles. Far more imprisonments, countless beatings. He says five times he'd been uh, struck with 40 lashes. Three times beaten with rods. Stoned once, shipwrecked three times adrift at sea, in danger from rivers, robbers, my own people, toil, hardship, exposure, anxiety, hunger, and thirst. Friends, these things are not theoretical for Paul. He's experienced these very things that would cause most to doubt Christ's love for them, things that the Romans were probably beginning to experience. He adds to this, a citation from Psalm 44 in verse 36. He says, As it is written, remember the scripture. For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. I wish I had time to walk through this entire psalm with you. But this psalm was written while the Israelites were in exile in Babylon. And the psalmist is looking back to God's faithfulness to their fathers, blessing them, blessing their obedience. And then the psalmist complains to God, saying, what are you doing? We're following your covenant. You have turned your face from us. 
You've made us to be like sheep for the slaughter. The psalmist literally says, Awake, Lord, why are you sleeping? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Paul says that the conditions facing the Romans are the very same conditions which faced the Israelites, connecting them. The same sorts of things that caused the Israelites to complain boldly in Scripture to God are the things that are likely causing the Romans to doubt God's love. In verse 37, Paul answers the question, Shall any of these things, tribulation, distress, persecution, etc., shall any of these things make us doubt God's love for us? He says, no, no. In all these things, in all these things, not despite all these things, in all these things, these tribulations, these trials, these afflictions, the same things the Israelites experienced, in all these things we are more than conquerors. This means that they wouldn't just overcome these things, get through them, But these things would be turned into benefits. Just before this in Romans 8.28, it says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things includes persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or the sword. All of those things will turn into benefits for God's people. We won't just overcome them. We are more than victorious, Paul says. He closes out this masterful passage in verses 38 through 39. Looking back at his initial question in verse 31, what shall we conclude on the basis of everything you've just heard? What conclusions should we draw? This is the conclusion we should draw. I am sure I am completely convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You may have noticed these opposites, angels, rulers, death, life, things present, things to come. Paul is saying there is nothing, nothing in all of the universe that can thwart, that can affect, that can destroy Christ's love for you. Nothing that you experience will affect the way God thinks about you. The main idea, I think, of this passage, if it can be distilled into a main idea, is that the Christians' future salvation and their present relation to God is completely, unequivocally, unshakable, unshakable on the basis of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Amen. New Testament scholar Richard Longenecker, he was the teacher of my teacher in graduate school, writes, 
The love of God poured out in the Christ event is the basis of Christian life and hope. He says, no created being or force can unsettle that foundation. In all of the uncertainty of human earthly life, there is something fixed, something certain. That is Christ's love and God's election. These are unshakable. And Christians must learn to trust in them and take them for granted. Friends, have any of you ever done something, thought something, or experienced something that made you think you'd be separated from God? Have any of you ever wondered, worried, feared that on the last day you would not be declared righteous, innocent? Qualified for eternal life with God? The basis of our Christian hope, the deciding factor in our eternal standing before God, is the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Something that's already happened. This means that our future salvation by God and our present relation to God depends not on something in us, but entirely on the work of Christ. If you're worried about any of this, about your eternal destiny, your life from now until then, your status before the God of the universe, just take a moment and think of Christ. Take a moment and think of Christ. Whatever work you think you must do to secure all these realities, Christ has already done it. He's done it. What Paul proclaims here in Romans is it's the gospel. Plain and simple, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. Nothing, absolutely nothing, can shake our relationship with God and Christ. God, friends, paid the highest price in the universe. To him, a price higher than the universe itself to secure for us that blessed reality. If you rely on Christ and Christ alone, not on yourself or on anything else, there's nothing that can alter God's view of you. Let me close with this. If you trust in Jesus, and only Jesus, you are unshakably secure in His love. My charge for you this morning, be encouraged by the love of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful so unbelievably grateful. Lord, you know I have a son I cannot imagine, cannot imagine giving up my son, either of my sons. You did that. The son who'd been with you for all eternity, you did that for us. 
Lord, you love us. I pray, Lord God, that if there is anyone here this morning who wants to decisively commit their lives to you, to receive you, Jesus, to stop trusting in themselves or in other things, and to put their trust entirely in you, I pray that they would do that this morning, Lord. Pray that they would see that the only fitness you require is that we admit our need of you, Lord. Please be with us this morning. We thank you so much for this time in your word, and we pray, Lord, that you would draw us further up and further into a relationship with you, a relationship that utterly transforms us from the inside out. We thank you and, and pray that you would use this community of believers to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our world, and that the glory would be entirely for you. We love you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.